My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. Hello and welcome to She Started It, the podcast that explores female entrepreneurship through the eyes of an inspiring guest every week. I'm your host, Angelica Malin, Editor-in-Chief of About Time magazine and founder of the She Starts It Live festivals. From fashion to fitness, law to entrepreneurship, this series of She Started It will explore what it takes to be a female trailblazer today. Get ready to be totally inspired. Today's podcast is brought to you in partnership with Tide. Tide is the business current account designed to support small business owners like you. With no daunting paperwork and no monthly fees, you could open an account in minutes. They couldn't make it simpler, trusted by over 100,000 businesses. Download the Tide app to get started today. Pip Stewart is an adventurer, journalist and presenter based in London. Pip studied history and politics at Oxford University and subsequently worked in Asia for five years as an anchor and reporter in Hong Kong and Malaysia. In 2013, Pip cycled home from Malaysia to London and started working as Red Bull's adventure editor. She covered 10,000 miles and 26 countries in a year on her bike. Pip also took on a world first, paddling the entire length of the Esquibo, South America's largest river, from source to sea. Um, Pip, thank you so much for joining me. Can you tell me, in your own words, probably a lot better than I did, about what it is that you do? Oh, that's a really good question. And thanks for having me. Um, so essentially, I think I try and tell stories that connect people. And over the course of my so-called career, it's been through long distance journeys primarily. So um, whether that was cycling back from Malaysia to London or crossing the Trans-Amazonian Highway in Brazil to look at deforestation or more recently paddling down a river in Guyana called the Essequibo. Um, I try and use these longer form journeys to tell stories about things that connect us. I mean, it's an absolutely amazing job and, and slightly bonkers, one might say, some of the things that you've done. When was the turning point when you wanted to do this and you started going on these journeys? Do you know what? It was completely accidental, to be honest. So when I left uni, I was like, I have no idea what to do. Like all of my friends had really prepared during uni and they'd gone on internships and their holidays. And I'd just gone traveling, basically. I'd spent time in Japan and in New Zealand and then had a real crisis when I left uni going, what the hell am I going to do? Um, so I applied to a graduate scheme at Innocent Drinks, lasted a year. I was genuinely shocking. I left before they sacked me. Um, I just couldn't sell stuff. What were you doing in sales? Yeah, I joined their graduate scheme and it was an amazing company to work for. But you know when you're just not in the right fit and you just feel like, God, this isn't me. There must be more to it than what I'm doing. Um, And I just felt like something was really missing in the work part of my life. So I sort of went back to travel again. I'm like, you know what? I absolutely love it. How can I make traveling look kind of more grown up and like a so-called career? So Mm. 
I applied to masters in Hong Kong and essentially went out to Asia to do a masters in journalism, mainly because I wanted to travel, but with the pretext that actually, if I look like I'm doing something, then uh, maybe my parents won't be giving me such a hard time about it, if you will. And then, so you went out there and you were, and how long did you work there? So I was in Asia for four years in total and I did this masters in journalism and I absolutely loved it. Um, there were 36 different nationalities on my course. I found it really interesting. And I just, something clicked within me. And I'm so glad that I just took that risk initially because after I left Innocent, I was like, I'll, I'll try and get into the media here. And I applied to so many internships with the BBC, ITV. You know, I, I came out with a good degree. I'd gone to a good uni. And I thought, oh, you know, I, I should be able to get into the media, but I didn't know anyone. Um, and I had door after door, like, slam in my face. So essentially, I thought, sod it. I'm moving to Asia. Um, and I think that's one of the big pieces of advice that I'd give to anyone is actually rejection's not a bad thing. You mm. will get rejected. Um, and just keep pushing and try and think a bit more creatively because... Moving to Asia gave me such confidence. It meant that I was finding more interesting stories. Um, and it just sort of set the path for what I'm doing now, really. Would you say you're someone that finds, like, quite easy to fit into place? So doesn't need, like, one sense of, like, home? Do you feel like kind of like a traveller of the world? Oh, my God, world? I feel like I should be lying down right now. <laughs> I know. <laughs> On the welcome couch. To my, welcome to my therapy. <laughs> uh, well, funnily enough, so my dad was in the forces and I was moved around loads as a kid. So I think I've always been used to uprooting myself. Mm. Um, and for me, home is where the people that I love are, essentially. And as long as I'm in touch with people that I'm in love with or, or I love, um, then I can kind of go anywhere and do anything, I think, in that sense. Mm. So it has its disadvantages being completely rootless, but I think in this situation, it really kind of served me well. Have you ever had a point where you were like, I really just need some roots now? Yes, yeah. And I think, so off the back of our last journey, which was kayaking down Guyana's Essequibo River, um, I came back with a flesh-eating parasite, which was horrific. Um, and essentially the, the cure for it is three weeks on an IV being pumped full of a really toxic heavy metal. Um, to try and cure this thing called leishmaniasis, which is a deadly sandfly bite, essentially. And wow, it just completely changed the way I thought about life. Really? Because, you know, you're looking at your mortality. And for the first time, I'm going, actually, you know, these journeys are freaking dangerous sometimes. And, you know, there is more to life. And I was living in London, and I love London as a city, but it never really felt like home for me. And for the first time, when I got back from that journey... I said to my partner, Charlie, look, I really just want to live by the coast. I always love being in nature. Um, why don't we just make this transition? Life is too short. And I think that was a catalyst for me in a sense. Mm, God, well, yeah, I suppose flesh eating bugs will, will do that to you a little bit. Yeah. Were there any other like big life revelations you had after that incident? Oh, God, so many. So, I mean, leishmaniasis um, is the second biggest parasitic killer after malaria. And I'd never really heard of it. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm atypical of the people who usually get it. And my friends back in Guyana were saying that they treat it with burning cow fat in order to heal the lesion. Um, you know, I had this huge bite on my neck, which was getting bigger and bigger and deeper and pussier. And it was absolutely disgusting. And, you know, the treatment I had for it dates from the 1940s, um, primarily because the people who get it are usually poor and in remote areas. And there's no capital incentive for drugs companies to do anything about it. So in a sense, when you say, you know, did it did it change anything in me? It gave me a real drive to sort of raise awareness of leishmaniasis. It made me realise how freaking lucky we are that mm. we've got the NHS and access to healthcare. And I think, yeah, it, it really highlighted some of the global healthcare inadequacies and injustices 
that go on around the world. And um, yeah, I'm sort of more of a campaigner now than I've ever been around really? those issues. Yeah, because yeah, it's just so yeah, it's just, it's just so crazy how much we take for granted our access to healthcare. That whatever happens, like you know, you would have died in those countries had it have happened to you potentially. And yeah, here, here you can just go to the NHS. Well, and- the reason I had to have treatment is the doctors said, look, if you don't treat this, it can eat off your nose and your soft palate. And bear in mind, you know, I'm super lucky, like the most severe form of this disease will kill you within two years if you don't get it treated. And you think, wow, like, yeah, again, mind was just blown about how little is being done in this field, really. Yeah. And I suppose your travels as a whole have just opened you up to so many issues. What are some of the other things that you've become really aware of and passionate about through your experiences? I'd say when we, so back in 2016, uh, a friend of mine, Reza Pakravan, and I went on a cycling journey across the Trans-Amazonian Highway in Brazil. And then we took small boats and planes across Peru. Um, And essentially, we were looking at how deforestation impacts um, indigenous people on the ground. And that was really eye opening for me, because for the first time, I saw the link between what we consume and the real life impact. And it was things like gold mining. You know, I'd never really thought about the things that I'd consumed before and let alone being in a mine that's being, you know, mercury is being pumped into the water um, the fish then like absorb the mercury, people eat the fish, and there's so much illness and death around the kind of gold mining industry that's just not talked about. So that was a real eye-opening journey for me as well. Why do you think these stories aren't being talked about? Is it because people aren't going and experiencing it firsthand? Do you think the media turns a bit of a blind eye? No, I, th- I, think, I think they're out there if you're looking for it. And what's going on with Extinction Rebellion and things like that, these stories are definitely there. But I think it's how tuned in you are to them Um, and essentially what you need is mass media and I don't know social media as well to get behind a story in the way that I have a lot of hope for gold in the way that we see single-use plastic now has become Mm -hmm. like this really big issue and I think gold will become uh, or mining generally will become the next I'm hoping it will anyway. Well I've seen a big trend towards talking about the diamond industry and looking at lab-grown diamonds and more sustainably-grown diamonds, and I think perhaps the same thing can happen. Oh, my God, absolutely. And, like, blood diamond, that did so much for that that particular Mm. industry, didn't it? So I think we need sort of the blood diamond of the gold industry or or a huge documentary that kind of sheds light more on it, definitely. Do you ever feel kind of conflicted? I feel like I'm going back into my therapy (laughs) Um, I don't know why I've taken on, like, a psychoanalyst role today. Um, Do you ever feel kind of conflicted when you go and you have these experiences and you go to poorer countries and countries where they don't have access to healthcare and everything like that and then you come back to the UK do things feel different and how do you kind of reconcile that with what we have and what others don't Mm, no it's it's definitely a really interesting question because I think the more you travel you realize how much more privilege you have and actually what what is it that you're doing with that privilege Um, so it makes me feel very grateful for the situation I'm in and also questioning how and what I'm doing when I travel as well so trying to be a little bit more responsible in that but yeah, definitely, it's um, it's a really complex issue. I just want to go back a little bit quickly because um, well, I feel like we got distracted from your career trajectory. Um, so you went to Asia and you did these five years and then you decided to cycle from Malaysia to London. Um, can you talk to me about that that decision and what the whole experience was like? Oh, so essentially we'd lived in Hong Kong, then we moved to Malaysia and... When you say we? Oh, me, sorry, my partner Charlie and I, we were living in Hong Kong and then we moved to Malaysia. And after about four or four and a half years living in Asia, we decided, you know what, we're really missing friends and family. And we had always talked about going home overland. And at first we were talking about trains and all of this. And then Charlie had this bonkers idea one day where he said, Pip, how about we cycle home? 
I just looked at him. I'm like, dude, I've only ever cycled around uni. Like, I'm not an athlete. I'm not a cyclist. You are freaking kidding me. No. Um, But the idea was sort of planted because I was thinking, actually, that's a really interesting way of finding unusual stories and and getting into locations and meeting people you wouldn't necessarily meet on a, a tourist path, in a sense. So I signed up for this idea and we did zero training. The first day I sat on my fully loaded bike was the day that we set off. And oh my gosh, it was a nightmare, to be honest. I I really questioned what I was doing. Well, yeah, I'm not surprised. (laughs) And three weeks in, we found like our first hill and I just had an absolute meltdown because I I was so unfit. I couldn't get the bikes pretty heavy as well. I imagine they're pretty packed. Oh my God, yeah, definitely. I mean, you needed two hands and you really had to heave to lift them up. And so trying to lug this up a hill when you're unfit was, was quite a thing. And Poor Charlie. I literally sat down on the side of the road. I threatened to break up with him. I screamed all sorts of blue murder at him. And for three hours, he tried to talk me around. Um, But I was like, you picked the wrong girl. I can't do this. I'm so embarrassed. I told my friends and family I'm going to cycle halfway around the world. And it was awful. Um, But at the end of that, he said to me, Pip, these are not physical journeys. They're mental ones. And as soon as I got that in my head, I was like, look, I can sit at my desk from nine to five or whatever it is so I can freaking well sit on a bike and cycle. And that that changed everything for mm. me because suddenly you don't have to be the fittest, the fastest, the first, any of that. It's just just get there. I do imagine you had quite a sore bum, though. Oh, no, actually, because I've got quite a padded bottom. Char- <laughs> Charlie has got this really bony, skinny little ass, whereas I, you know, I, I'm a big advocate of cake on any adventure because it does sort of pad Lo- you out a bit. Load up. Well, I was yeah. going to ask how much planning goes into these kind of trips like I suppose a lot of cake eating exactly that's the that's a prime thing um with the with the cycle ride it was very much um we had to plan visas so we had to know which capitals that we needed to get the visas for the next countries in but other than that on the website we had at the time all I said was route up and then left from Malaysia so essentially it was um we were very much reliant on meeting people and finding out where would you guys recommend going and talking to local people and very much making it an organic journey in a sense. What was the experience like? Do you think it would have been very different if you'd done it totally solo? Yes, I think so. I think when we met so many people doing solo journeys, um, but I'm a real people person. I think Mm. I would probably go slowly mad if I spent a lot of time on my own, especially because it took us 13 months. Um, And I just, I think that amount of time is just probably not for me, but for loads of people we met, they were really into it. And it was sort of like that um, journey of self-discovery in a sense. Yeah, but yeah. because Charlie was a, a lot faster than me, we spent a lot of time just on our own, really, in your own head. So mm. you had that nice thing where when you were camping, you had companionship. And then when you're on the road, you're you're lost in your own thoughts and you're absorbing the landscape. As I mean, it's just by. an amazing thing to do. How did you feel when you got back to the UK having cycled all the way? It was amazing. It was genuinely, you sort of look back and think, oh my God, did I do that? Did I actually do that? Um, and it still didn't feel real in a sense. Um, and then you had the doom of, oh my God, now I need to get a job. Yeah. <laughs> like, what the hell am I going to do? What, what were your favourite bits from the journey? Um, God, the people that we met. So we just had unbelievable hospitality everywhere that we went, um, especially in Central Asia. Um, Tajikistan was just incredible. And we had people inviting us into their houses. And uh, I don't know, we sort of made so many friends along the way. And it sounds really cliched, but I think the reason I love these long distance journeys is that you realise that the world is a really good place. And actually, if you look at media at the moment, the polarisation of society, everything like that is so easy to feel negative. Mm. Um, And I think that's why I love travel, because I come back and go, actually, you know, the 
world is full of good people mm. we will be all right and the beauty of doing it on a bike is you you get access to places that you probably wouldn't go to if you were in a car or you just flew between them you're actually getting into like the rural parts of the journey oh my gosh yeah and we were in Uzbekistan and we I was covered in dust we'd been on this really dusty road I was wearing a white linen shirt that was just seeped in like this red dust I was sweaty and disgusting and suddenly we hear like a load of music and everyone's beckoning, beckoning us over. And it was a wedding and we literally just got pulled off our bikes and invited into this wedding. We were given shots of vodka. Um, wow. And like, it was unbelievable. You just think, would we get invited to a wedding in the UK? You're no. Probably not. No, Whereas, absolutely not. Just I don't off. get invited to weddings like some of my friends. <laughs> I know, it's a tough gig, isn't it? you've got to really impress them. They're going to buy them a gift and everything. I know. Amazing. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. Today's podcast is brought to you in partnership with Tide, the UK's fastest growing business current account provider. Feel confident in your first steps as a founder with smart financial tools and 24-7 in-app support. With easy invoicing and accounting integrations, Tide is an alternative to traditional banks for small businesses like yours. Spend less time on admin and more time on growing your business. Tide are also committed to helping women in business and are offering our listeners £50 when you open a Tide account and deposit £50. Just visit www.tide.co forward slash she started it to get started. If you're feeling inspired by this week's episode and are thinking of starting your own business, why not come along to the next She Started It live in London? Taking place on the 13th and 14th of March 2020 at Crypt on the Green in Farringdon, this two-day flagship festival will give you all the advice and inspiration you need to supercharge your career with over 75 incredible speakers. Book on Eventbrite now by searching for She Started It Live and use the code SHESTARTEDIT10 for 10% off. And so then you got back to the UK and then you were like, okay, I need to get a job now. Yeah. And was that a bit of a crash back to reality? What happened? Oh my God, the whole thing, because Charlie and I had spent 13 months together and then suddenly our parents come to pick us up. So it feels like you're going back to like school days. We get put in different cars and we go home back to our, our parents' houses and you think, oh my gosh, like we need to find somewhere to live. We need to find a job. Um, and that was a really weird stage in life, I think, sort of going back home and thinking, 
you've changed in so many ways, but then you're sort of back to where mm. you were before you left. Um, and I was really fortunate in that I was just sort of scouring the job sites, thinking I still might do freelancing, but it'd just be interesting to see what else is out there. Um, and Red Bull were um, looking for an action sports editor. And I just flung in an application and they got back to me and said, oh, you're not quite right for that job, but we're looking for an adventure editor if you're interested. And it was like literally my perfect job. So I was like, hell's yes. Um, so I ended up doing that for the next three years. And so, what did that job entail? So that was sort of editing, um, commissioning, adventure-based content. So it was really great having had that background. And it's funny, isn't it, how sometimes taking a risk can actually benefit your career. So I think they really like the fact that I... Definitely, I'm, I think your CV must have really stood out. Yeah, because, I mean, they were looking for someone adventurous. And I'm like, look, I've just cycled for 13 months and, you know, I spent time in Asia. So I think it was funny, the things you think might be career suicide might actually mm. shape your next role in, in a better way, in a sense. Mm, and we do, so. I think, well, I mean, I, I don't have a boss, but I do imagine that we have a bit of an anxiety over gaps in our CV or doing things a bit left of field. And actually, you're right, sometimes those are thing that makes you stand out yeah and it very much depends what industry you're in as well because if you're in a creative industry I'm fascinated by people who have taken time out to do something whether it's volunteering or you know even just traveling or, or doing something with a purpose and I think oh like tell me more mm. you've got stories at least yeah definitely and then so you did that and then you're here now so you do now you now you're full-time on the adventure yeah, so essentially um, when I got back from my last trip, which was the Essequibo journey, um, I left Red Bull because I, m much as I loved it, um, I was getting more opportunities sort of doing my own thing through social media and through documentary making and writing and things like that. So it was a good time for me to step away, even though I absolutely love the team and really miss them. Um, but yeah, so now I'm sort of out on my own, which is a different thing in itself mm. because... I think so many people think, oh, it, it must be amazing to work for yourself. And as you know, there's definitely ups and downs, right? When yeah, you're doing your own thing. I, yeah, I, I think, oh God, I think, yeah, it's it's just, that's the nature of it is that it's just so changing every day. And I think people from the outside think it looks super glamorous and working for yourself is so fun. And actually it's a lot, it's a struggle a lot of the time. It's a hustle and it's up and down, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, and especially when you're on your own. So now I'm living on the South Coast. So a lot of my time is just spent either on my laptop sort of preparing for journeys or writing them up or whatever, or on my own. And I, I really do miss that interaction with other people. Mm. But yeah, when you do get it, it's amazing. So it's definitely a mixed blessing. And I think there's definitely a danger in our society to think, oh God, I, I want to be my own boss and this and that. But actually... I'd say really figure out what it is that you want in life. Is it the flexibility or the freedom? Can you get that in a workplace environment? And sort of really drill down on what, what are the things that I'm trying to get out of my work life? Mm. And then on the kind of presenting side, I feel like so many people want to be presenters and front documentaries. Did that come naturally out of the stories that you were creating or did you kind of go out there and approach like production companies? And um, I think when I did my master's in Hong Kong, um, I was really lucky in the sense that I applied to an internship or not an internship, I applied for a job on the local TV station out there. And they took a punt on me. They said, yeah, why not? So I started doing hard news. So I used to, you know, be an anchor at the nine o'clock news, I like sort of big jacket, big hair, very different to what I do now. But it was a great sort of ground for learning my craft and sort of getting out and, and doing telly stuff, essentially. And I think that was sort of what got the ball rolling. Mm. 
But again, you know, if if you if that's what you want to do and you're struggling in the UK, is there somewhere else you can go? Mm. Are there? And especially now, um, social media has advanced so much. You can just sort of bypass traditional media in a sense. You know, you do your own thing on YouTube or Instagram, and yeah, yeah, carve yeah. your own way. It's yeah, and I suppose you they are like your own portfolios now, so you can you can produce your own content and go that way. Yeah, get a side hustle. Yeah, exactly. Although, do you think it's all a bit stressful? Because sometimes I find it the fact that we do have all these platforms and we can do all of that. It's almost like because it's so open to you that kind of freaks me out as well because you feel like maybe you should be doing a YouTube and you should be doing this and actually I don't know oh my god it's and it's, it's endless isn't it which is why I'd say like get your core values about what it is that you want out of work so for me it would say it'd be something like you know I want to travel and I want to meet people and I want to have flexibility of my own time now mm-hmm. how how I go about that like what what would the ideal career be like mm-hmm. in that sense mm-hmm. and I think the other thing is is a lot of people go, well, how did you get to where you are now? And actually, they don't see sort of 15 years of work before that, some of which was really shitty, to be honest. You know, I was when I was in Malaysia, I wasn't earning enough freelancing through my journalism. So I was teaching English to, to scientists in Beijing as a way of like, you know, trying to earn a little bit of money on the side. So you definitely have to want to do this. Mm. I mean, it's definitely not an easy journey either, but it's worth it if you kind is of persevere. The- is the commercial side of what you do kind of challenging as well? Because obviously you want to travel, but then you also have to earn. And I can imagine there's a bit of a balance between the two that's quite difficult to manage. Oh my God, absolutely. And I see so many people saying, just quit your job and travel. And I'm like, no, that's that's a terrible idea. Um, sort of get some like financial, sound financial plans in place. Um, so again, you know, I used to work, at, as I said, at Innocent, and then I, I worked at a TV station. And I was very keen to try and save. Um, and I bought a really small flat that I could then rent out. And in, to be honest, it was very much being able to rent out a flat and knowing that I was getting X amount in each month that could kind of give me that freedom to go, well, actually, now I can sort of pay for some of these journeys or if I don't get as much work because I'm going on these trips and it will be OK. And, and no one really likes to talk about it, but, but budgeting and finance is really important. And mm. if that means spending two to three years sort of hustling and saving um go for it yeah yeah rather than that quit your job mentality no it's crazy isn't it and with um with the work that you do and the adventures that you've had so you mentioned about the flesh-eating parasite are there any other like lucky escapes that you've had through your journeys where you thought this is actually kind of dangerous oh my gosh so this um the journey we did in Guyana it was a world first kayak down a river that had been very underexplored um throughout the history of, of the river I suppose and there was one section on the hike to the source where we knew that if we got into trouble, we were really screwed. Um, And essentially, we went to see the helicopter rescue people before they set off. And they said, there is no way we can land in dense primary rainforest. Uh, We were moving at four kilometers on a good day, you know, macheting our way through this dense, thick undergrowth. And it was on this hike in this three week section where I got my foot stuck between a log and a vine. And from behind me, my friend Laura suddenly went, oh my God, there's a snake. And literally two inches under my bottom was something called the Labaria snake, which is known for its fast, swift and deadly attacks. And oh my gosh, Jackson, one of our YY guides, appeared over me with a machete and then just macheted it to death. Oh my God. I know. I just looked at him. I was like, Jackson, why did you kill the snake? And he was like, Pip, if I didn't kill the snake, it would have killed you. And I think that was a real moment where I was like, what is it? You talk about the therapist's couch, but it was really it was really that sort of thing where I'm like, what is it about myself? What is what kind of 
part of my ego has led me here to do these like extreme journeys. What exactly am I trying to prove? Because mm. I could die. Mm. Um, and I think for the next three weeks, I was having night terrors in the middle of the night. I was waking up screaming. Um, it was it was a really tough time. And I think the only thing that got me through that uh, was telling my teammates that I was really struggling. And suddenly a fire would appear under my hammock. Um, the guys would all sleep around me at night. And that sort of slowly started to relax me. But my God, that was so that was scary. a real sort of probably the most tense moment I've had on my travels. How um how does your partner deal with it? He's very he's very chill to Is be he? honest. Yeah, he's just because um, mine doesn't like me like walking from the tube station. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know how I feel. I think Ch- Charlie Charlie gets I love it so much. I mean, it really does light me up. And I love going to these um, sort of unexplored or underexplored parts of the world. And it, it's, I don't know, I just I just love it. And I love finding the story. So he's quite supportive. Has he sense. stayed um, with the travel as well? Or not? Yeah, so he came out to meet us with Laura's husband, Ed. And um, that was fantastic. So they met us halfway down the river. And it was a really nice experience. They stayed for a week. Um and yeah, Charlie's Charlie now does his own thing. He's an entrepreneur. He's he runs his own business. And I think, I think that's the trick in a relationship, isn't it? It's finding uh, a balance between what works for you individually and what works for you as a couple. So mm. obviously, going away for three months was really tough. Um, but then you know he met me halfway, and we had an amazing part of that trip together. So. Yeah, and something really special that can kind of you can do together yeah, during it. Exactly. Yeah, it's beautiful. I feel like I've given you so, like, we've given each other quite a lot of therapy during this yeah. podcast. <laughs> Maybe I need to change the nature of it. Be like on the couch with Angelica Mayden. Yeah, series three. Here we come. <laughs> um, I wanted to touch briefly on Instagram. So you mentioned that that was some of the the work that you were getting when you decided to leave Red Bull. Um, do you see yourself as an influencer? How do you feel about like the social media culture, as it were? Yeah, oh, it's a it's a funny beast, isn't it? Social mm. media. Um, so last month I was I came runner up in Cosmopolitan Influencer. I saw. Of Congratulations. The year, uh, travel section bit. Thank you. Um, and I found that really weird because I don't think of myself as an influencer. I think of myself as a journalist. Um, but I read a really good book the other week. I don't know if you've read it. It's called Invisible Influence by Johann Berger, I think, mm-hmm. or Johannes Berger. But he was saying that everybody has influence. And actually, there was this one study that was essentially saying that if you want to reduce electricity bills, that people were trying different things. They were posting a note through saying it's really good for the environment or it will save you money. But the one thing that actually got people to change their habits was saying all your neighbours are doing it. Mm. And I think what we don't realise is that whether you've got one follower or 100 million, you know, we all have influence. And that's quite scary when you think about it. Um, and I think that's what social media is giving us all access to. We've got a platform, but it's also kind of understanding what are we being influenced by and by who and who are you choosing to follow and why? So mm. I think social media, the clue is in the name. It's a two way thing. And Yes, I think influencers have a huge responsibility in the sense of you need to be upfront about what products you're being sponsored by or supported by. If you're an ambassador, I'm, a, I'm an ambassador for Craig Hoppers, for example. But it's a brand that I really sort of value and, and um, use their products. So I think as long as there's a honesty with it mm. and just an awareness on the part of the, the consumer of social media as well, that it's, it is this two-way thing. Do you think it's made us less, like more intrepid travellers? Because I feel like... I will go to destinations because I've seen them on Instagram. So it's this kind of like self-fulfilling travel itinerary where you're just only really going to places that other people have been to. I think it's like the Santorini effect. Oh my God, Um, absolutely. I think I might trademark that. (laughs) 
<laughs> um, but do you think that that may, yeah, do you think we're, we're less kind of curious because of things like social media? It, it's, it's funny, isn't it? Because in some ways people are going there because of social media, but then we're, it's sort of that herd mentality and a lot of us are doing the same sort of thing. And um, I was in Bali quite recently and I saw, I saw a sign on the side of the road that said, waterfall selfie spot this way i'm like oh my gosh God. um but i suppose bali is a prime example it's like it's just such a cliche i mean i've never been but like my, i i wanted to go with my best friend and she was like oh but i think it'll just be like going to try yoga yeah well <laughs> do you try know yoga on the beach <laughs> in in a sense absolutely but i'd say i'd say social media is now the equivalent of the old rough guides or the lonely planets or whatever it is you know the top tens that used to be in those books are now sort of online and social mm. but I guess the danger is there's so many more of us traveling now or have access to travel. And again, that comes down to like, what is my responsibility when I travel and what, what are the messages that I, I want to be sending out? Yeah, it's like, don't go to that giraffe hotel. Yeah. Those kind of things. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah. and I'm really sort of interrogating that and thinking about it because everything everything is online now, which is both brilliant and terrifying. Yeah, so scary. Um, tell me, what is your next trip? How's it shaping up? Oh, so having put myself, like literally put my body in harm's way, this time I'm like, right, can I do something a little bit kind of quieter that's not going to like necessarily involve me paddling for hours a day? Um, so I want to look at what connects us. And my first book on that will be looking at love. So essentially, I want to question some of the narratives around love in the 21st century, because I think we get stuck in these tropes, don't we? That, you know, a lot of my friends are single and willingly single. A lot of my friends are sort of in their 30s now don't want children and yet people are like hang on a minute what, what's wrong and they're like nothing's wrong I just don't want children or I'm happily single um, monogamy you know that's another thing that people assume that you know people are monogamous well what if you're not what if you're polyamorous and so essentially I, I want to come at these sort of things and with a, from a place of non-judgment and just ask like what what is love in the 21st century mm. um, because I think we're getting sold so many false expectations not just about love but about happiness as well. Like one of my big bugbears is everyone's like, well, it doesn't matter as long as you're happy. I'm like, you're human. You're going to have ups, you're going to have downs, you're going to have bad days. And actually, surely the goal should just be contentment and acceptance of where you are in that moment. Mm. And that's been the biggest learning for me from all my adventures is sometimes they're freaking miserable and you're like, what am I doing? But it's it's those times where you really grow and you learn and you understand more about yourself mm. and the world around you. So essentially doing that with, with the topic of love and going around the world and um, sort of analysing different cultures and different ways of being. Oh, it sounds absolutely amazing. I wish you the best of luck with it. Thank you. Talking to you is like having a triple shot latte and I love it. And I feel so <laughs> energised and also like I want to go to Guyana and oh, do lots of things. Should. And I need to be a bit more adventurous in my life. Thank you, Pip. Thank you so much. That was really fun. If you enjoyed today's episode don't forget to subscribe rate and review so more people can find the show until next time keep dreaming and achieving my business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments then tap to pay on iphone and stripe came along and changed everything with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamline my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. 
Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone.